I thank you, our God, that even in the midst of storms, we have a harbor in which we can come and safely tie our ship to. It's called your throne. And it's in your throne, as we come in the entrance of it, we realize that the way has been paved by our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a place that we can come and we don't have to fear. It's a place that we can come any moment of any day. It's a place that we can come whereby we can put any request down. But it's a place that we really need to find grace and mercy to help in time of need. If anything would draw us to your, to your throne, O oh Lord God, it would be grace and mercy. We understand that grace is that which we deserve, but yet you have kept us from us. You have allowed us this privilege by grace through faith to come and enter into your throne room because the passage reminds us that we are sons and daughters of God. We're part of your family. Mercy is the part that we thank you that you give to us that which we don't deserve. Both grace and mercy are the avenues to your throne. And we thank you this morning that already you know the outcome of the requests that we have just previously mentioned. For John and for Shirley, we, we ask for patience. John is a, a dear saint. He has one of the calmest spirits that I've come across. He refers to me as young man. But his first words out of his mouth are, how are you doing? He doesn't take great pride in, in making sure everybody knows how struggles he and Shirley are going through, but I know that they're praying for us right now. And so, Father, we lift him up to you with a heart condition that only 21% of his heart is functioning. We would sense that in the physical realm, his days may very well be numbered, but in the spiritual realm, we understand that, Lord, you are the determiner of our days. And I pray, O oh God, that you would minister to he and to Shirley. Assure them that there's a church that cares for them and praying for them and wants to help them. Assure them, O oh God, that you've never left them and you'll never forsake them. And give to them, Lord, the spirit of peace, even in the midst of their storm. Thank you for those who have 
volunteered to be transportation specialists for them. I pray, oh God, that you would protect them in these days. The information that we received, oh Lord, from Dana may very well surprise us, but it didn't surprise you. I thank you, Lord, that she knows you and that you know her. You've written on her heart the very truth that she is a daughter of yours. The pen was filled with faith, my grace, and it still flows not only from her heart, but Lord, to every part of her body. She knows you, O oh God, and you know her as one of your sheep. And you even know the outcome of what yet is to come. And so I ask that you would give to her, as she is requested for peace, I thank you that we can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But we can also have the peace of God that passes all understanding that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And I thank you, Lord, that you will minister to her and her family that we as a church and also as other community members will have an opportunity to come and to support her. Whether they are going to be shooting at clay targets, things I have no idea about, or buying or purchasing those things that I know a lot about, refreshments. The proceeds go to help this family. So God, I pray, that the March's game farm would be inundated with care of people who just want to be of some help for a family that needs it right now. We lift up to you our dear sister, Marcia. She has been against it for a few months now. It's difficult to understand where one day you feel good and the next day you don't. That fast. And the conflictingness between physicians and hospitals and, and apparatuses and all kinds of things. I know where on her heart and on her mind. But I thank you, God, that you are the great physician. You are the one who can speak, and it'll be done. And it's in these times, oh God, that we call out to you and ask of you if it would be possible. But then we must remember to say, but not my will, but thy will be done. So I pray for Marcia and Greg and, and their family.
in these tempest times. Bring to them a calmness that comes from your voice when you will usher into them and say, peace be still. God, may you and your glory shine forth in these situations far more than what we could even ask or think. But we will praise you. For you alone are worthy and we're grateful that our God hears and answers prayer. And so, O oh Lord God, to you be the glory both now and forevermore. And we ask these things. Amen. I was sharing with Harold and Pastor Steve this morning as we were in our time of prayer that when you come to a passage that sort of is self-explanatory, what do I have to give to it? I'm glad I've got 20 minutes and not 40 because we'd get out early. But there are some things I want to draw our attention to in this very powerful argument that the Apostle Paul is giving to the church, churches, if you will, in Galatia. Just for review, in chapter 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul highlights his credentials. He relates to this church, or the churches, that he is an apostle. It wasn't something that was conferred on him from individuals. He received it directly, described for us in Acts chapter 9, that he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And then Jesus took him on a three-year seminary in the desert and taught him. In chapter 3 and in chapter 4, the Apostle Paul now is laying out the principles of what it means to be justified by faith. He reminds us in chapter 3, from verse 1 all the way to verse 25, that justification happens only by faith in God, not of works. In fact, he highlights some principles from the book of Leviticus and also the book of Deuteronomy that if you are bent on trying to keep the law, if you break one, you're in trouble. It's a paraphrase, but James tells us the same thing in James chapter 2. If you break one, you've broken them all. Justification, we know, is that declaration of God whereby an individual is not guilty based upon grace and faith in Jesus Christ. It's a one-and-done proclamation. 
Is that something that you need to go back to and renew? Because in Christ, we are no longer enemies of God. That's by grace through faith. And in chapter 3, the Apostle Paul uses illustrations to highlight what he's getting at. You might recognize in verse 23 that the Apostle Paul, in 20, verse 23 down to verse 25, highlights two instances of what the law does, what the law is for. The first one, it says that we're in prison. We are a prisoner. Now, our mind thinks that as a prisoner, we've done something wrong. And by the way, we have. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Can I get an amen from the congregation? But what he's referring to is the law kept us a prisoner to protect us. Almost like if you become a witness of the federal government and they put you in a witness protection plan, you're kept at a place you are provided for and to make sure that when your day comes to appear in court, you're going to be able to testify of things that you've seen and heard. The Apostle Paul uses the same thing, prisoner in the fact that we are on the protected plan. The law was there for a purpose of bringing individuals to the realization that they can't keep it. And so in reality, it was keeping those people to the point of what it says when faith appears meaning Jesus Christ. The other thing it talks about is that the law is our tutor. Now, we don't really come to full understand about that, but in the Jewish culture, there would be an individual who would be hired. Usually, it would have been a slave of the homeowner. And one of the slaves, was his charge was to make sure that from the age of six all the way up through the age of 13 or 14, that that child would be protected. We presently call them babysitters. My wife and I engage once in a while in babysitting. That's when we know our grandchildren are coming, we stock up on cotton candy and Red Bull. We make sure they're safe. And when we send them home, we want them to be awake. Amen, baby? Amen. But in chapter 4, the Apostle Paul goes another step. In fact, he, rem- he writes for us, Now I say that an heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ from him at all from a slave, though he is the master of all. Becoming an heir, it's, 
It's more of a dignified term than what we're used to. But I, but I want to give you an illustration to help you to understand what the Apostle Paul is talking about. We all families have rules. The way you're supposed to act. Certain rules come with age requirements. Our daughters could only get their ears pierced. Now, this doesn't apply to everybody, but that's okay. Our daughters could only get their ears pierced when they turned 13 years old, not before. That was a law. That was mama's law. And when mama's got a law, can I get an amen? Papa, don't say nothing. They'd come to me, Dad, can I get a, my ears pierced? I said, how old are you? I said, you better go ask your mother. I was born at night, but I wasn't born last night. Can I get an amen? Well, when he came to 13 years old, my son also asked, Dad, What do I get when I'm 13? I said, the key to the lawnmower. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Yes, sir. That's what the Apostle Paul's getting at. Not that you're going to get a key to the lawnmower. But there are requirements of what it means to be an heir. And the reason the Apostle Paul draws this out is because the previous verse, he talks about being heir with Abraham. He's not talking about an age per se, but what he's talking about are the principles. In order to be an heir with Abraham, You had to come by faith. Up to that point, as the Apostle Paul continues in chapter 4, we are under elements of this world that dictate to us what we can and cannot do. Let me give you an example. Those of you that are teenagers and itching to get behind the wheel of a car, you can't do it until you reach 16. Because that's the earliest age that you can get your permit. And then there are restrictions using that permit. In other words, you think you got some freedom, but you didn't get it all yet. And even after you get your driver's license, Until you reach the age of 18, you can't drive at night unless there's someone in the car with you that is of that age. Those are some of the elements of the world. We're not free to do whatever we want to do. But there comes a time when all of a sudden you become that age 
that you are given the opportunity to be able to gain what your father has established. In the Jewish culture, it's 12. They call it bar mitzvah, which means son of the law. We've had, I've had the privilege with my family to go to a bar mitzvah celebration because one of our son's uh, friends in school who was Jewish invited us to go. It is a four-hour. I didn't know that. I'm sitting there for four hours, and I see people coming in. Little did I know is that we could have waited for the last 15 minutes and then gone in. But anyway, the food was great. I didn't miss that. In the Roman culture, it was different. The Romans had a date of March the 17th, according to their calendars, whereby there was a celebration that the father of the household determined if the son was worthy enough to be called an adult. The father established it. Not a law. The father did. For that infant to be considered a full-blown son, there was something he had to do. He had to prove himself worthy. We have a heavenly father who has determined how we become sons and daughters. And it's by faith. Grace through faith. Not only does that get us justified, but two things I want to relate to you that all of a sudden change in us as persons. We get a new identity. Pastor Steve read for us in chapter 3 when it talks about that when we come by faith, we put on, verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. A new identity. We no longer belong to ourselves. We belong to the one who died for us. And in that identity, the Apostle Paul continues on by saying, doesn't matter who you are, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, doesn't matter. In the, in the family of God, that doesn't mean that there aren't still positions. But what there are not His level of importance. In the family of God, we're all equal. Male, female. And for the Apostle Paul to say this, 
It goes against the grain of a prayer that every Jewish man would begin their day by saying, God, I thank you that you have not made me a woman. That's how they started every single day. And by grace through faith, that prayer means nothing. Because whether male or female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, in Christ Jesus, we're all on the same level. All we are is sinners saved by grace for his purpose and for his glory. We have a new identity. We also have a new unity. The new unity is established for us in chapter 4. Where it says, but when the fullness of time had come. Now the Heavenly Father is going to establish the level and the access into his grace. Because he says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. Born of a woman. Born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. In our Sunday school class that we meet here, the adult Sunday school class, we've been talking many, many weeks, in fact, five weeks, focusing in on who Jesus Christ is. And the reason we do that is because our faith in Christ rises and falls upon who he is and what he has done. So many theories out there, out in our community about how is it that you know you can have eternal life. And here in this verse alone, God answered that question. I sent forth my son. He was born of a woman. Don't miss that word. It doesn't say he was born of a man. Now you're all thinking, I've got three heads because there's no child that's born of a man, but here it goes. Let me just explain what I'm saying. If Paul would have said, born from a man, then Jesus would have had a sin nature and he could not have died on the cross for our sins. Romans chapter 5. By one man, sin entered the world and passed on to all generations. But there was a new man who came into town. And his name was Jesus. And he came who knew no sin. So when Jesus was born of a woman, the declaration is this. He was sinless, and yes, he took on human nature for us. He came when individuals were under the law. There was no hope. Because the law could not do what faith alone could do. 
He came for one reason, to redeem us. We don't know too much about that word redeem because presently we're not in this kind of a society. On your coupons, ladies, on the bottom, it says you must redeem this coupon before this date or it becomes null and void. But the redemption that's here in this text is reference to a slave. A slave would be purchased and owned by an owner to do whatever that owner demanded that individual to do. He was never released, would never be freed. But when Jesus Christ came to the slave market of sin and saw us on the market, he purchased us and set us free. We no longer are bound by the chains of sin. We've been set free because Jesus Christ died for us. But not only that, but he gives us something. I'm not talking about just eternal life. He gives us the very Holy Spirit that he promised he would give. And that your people is the insignia ring that we belong to God. We have in us the Holy Spirit. And so dynamic is that that the Holy Spirit helps us to pray Abba Father. There's only three times in Scripture that you'll see that phrase together. In Mark chapter 13, Jesus is in the garden, and he's asking God to take away this punishment. And he says, Abba, Father. In Romans chapter 8, a highlight, if you will, of what we've just been looking at this morning. In Romans chapter 8, it says there that we have been given the Spirit of God, whereby we may cry out, Abba, Father. And then it's here. In chapter 4, and in verse 6, And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Those two words together are precious in the Scriptures. One is intimacy, the other is respect. Abba, Father, is a word that my, my daughters call me. They all call me daddy. It's intimacy. It's that relationship that can only be in a family. The other is respect. Father. Father is the office. Father is the head. Father is the glory of the house. But daddy is crawling up on the lap. 
And when an individual, by grace through faith, not only do we become heirs of all that God promised to Abraham, but now we have this intimate relationship, this intimacy, this unity with God himself that we can crawl up on his lap and say, Daddy, I need something. Father, I respect you. The law doesn't do that. In fact, you can search the Old Testament scriptures all you want. Never did the nation of Israel consider God to be their father. It wasn't until Jesus showed up in Matthew chapter 6 when the disciples said, teach us to pray. And Jesus began by saying, Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Up to that point, that was strange. Intimacy, unity, respect. That's what faith in Jesus Christ does for us. That we can be called sons and daughters of the living God. Let's pray. Our great Father, Abba, I thank you for your abiding presence. I thank you for your love. I praise you for the joy that is us when we become children of God. We become joint heirs with Jesus, which guarantees us that one day we'll be in glory. Oh, Lord, our God, I thank you for the the open plainness of this passage that describes for us how it is that we become heirs with Jesus Christ. And how I ask, O oh God, that these words, this passage would not soon be cut off from our remembrance, but help us to enjoy the, the position that we now have. And unto you, we give you the glory. Unto you, we proclaim that you are worthy. And we worship and bow down. For it's in Christ our Savior we recognize these things. Amen.